Creative Babble. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey guys, here's one more bonus episode before season four starts. It's from the Twisted Podcast with John Taylor. I asked John if I could stitch together two of his episodes and play them on my feed. Lucky for you, he said yes. But before we start the episode, I met up with John at a coffee shop to talk about his story. And we have a celebrity who listens to this show. Her name is Allison Sweeney from Days of Our Lives and The Biggest Loser. And she has a new project, and she's going to tell us all about it at the end of the show. So stick around. So you've actually worked in law enforcement for many years. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, I'm also, I write uh, True Crime as well as the podcast, and previously I was an agent with the Secret Service many years ago. I'm currently a private investigator licensed here in North Carolina, so I do still actively investigate uh, criminal cases. And your show is friggin' awesome, and so I wanted the world, well, the world, because <laughs> the whole world. The pretend radio world. The pretend radio world to listen to it. <laughs> now, I really wanted my audience to check it out, because we've been wanting to collaborate for a long time, and I listened to two of your episodes that really blew me away, and I wanted to share it with my audience. Can you tell me about the, the episodes we were going to play? Yeah, I think you picked uh, two very interesting episodes in my perspective. Uh, so you're, this is an interview I did with an author named John Fay, who he had a relationship with the serial killer Arthur Shawcross, who was considered the Genesee killer. And so they corresponded back and forth in letters while Shawcross was in prison. And what I mean, that's interesting enough, but John Fay is a very peculiar individual in that he's highly intelligent, but he's also very disturbed. Uh, he is kind of considers himself like somebody who never became a serial killer, but who has thought about it, who thinks about killing people, who thinks about cannibalism. Is John Fay just a regular guy in real life? Like, would most people know that he is has this obsession with the macabre? It's hard to tell because he's brutally honest in some ways. So I have a lot of respect for him that he does not hold back. He tells you know what's on his mind. But a lot of what on what is on John Faye's mind is very uncomfortable and disturbing to a lot of people. And to me, what is so fascinating about John Faye and Arthur Shawcross within this episode is that where is that line between thinking about something and doing something really horrific? And with Arthur Shawcross and John Faye, there's the line. It's sitting there between the two of them. And it's hard to tell where it is and, and what kept John from going over it and what allowed Arthur to do it. But you actually had a conversation with John Faye. What was that like? It was much more comfortable and engaging than almost any conversation I've ever had. He, he was somebody I felt like I could just continue to talk to. Um, I felt like he was pretty, I don't know, self, not confident necessarily, but just he knew he knows who he is. And he's very much willing to talk about anything. 
And he's not going to give you a superficial answer. He's there's a lot of depth to everything he says. So I found it very fascinating. Uh, he certainly it's unnerving the things that he is interested in and fixated on. But I would probably not necessarily want to spend a lot of time with him. <laughs> but as far as a conversation goes, I was looking forward to that conversation as much as I've looked forward to any conversation. And do you think that the guy next to us has any idea what we're talking about? What is <laughs> that? The guy next to us, does he have any idea what we're talking about? <laughs> He's probably completely freaked out right now. Because <laughs> this is what we do. We just go to coffee shops and talk about really bizarre stuff, right? <laughs> this is our thing. It's the way we roll, yeah. Okay, so without further ado, this is the Shawcross Letters from the Twisted Podcast with John Taylor. Talk to me a little bit about how you began communicating with Arthur Shawcross. Uh, well, uh, he wrote to me, actually, initially, because I was uh, selling some of his artwork, his drawings on eBay, back when you could still do that. Uh, it was known as a murderabilia. Uh, you could still sell this stuff, but on, on different websites. But, uh, you know, he discovered that I was doing that and basically wrote to me asking where I got the drawings, which was from... Uh, I guess groupies of his that I was having interesting trades with on eBay because I used to be a regular seller on there. And uh, basically, ultimately, I, you know, we thought about splitting the prof profits as he would do more drawings, and uh, you know, I would send him a money order for like fifty percent of whatever I sold him for, and he was very amenable to that. And uh, we struck up a communication from there, and then eventually uh, grew into a, a friendship, I suppose. A very close friendship at that. But yeah, that, that's uh, basically the uh, summary of how uh, we initially met. Well, in the in the book, you mentioned kind of having a level of comfort in communicating with uh, Arthur. Why do you think you felt so at ease with him? Uh, he was one of the very few people who accepted me at that time. Because uh, I guess you could say we had similar mindsets in a sense where I... I uh, Especially back then, I suffered what what I call the affliction or just it. You know, it was a uh, more, uh, I guess, Jeffrey Dahmer type of thinking, I suppose, my people and collecting people. And there's not many others, not many other human beings you could talk to about these things. And you mention it to a therapist where you have to be careful because they will have you uh, locked up. Uh, it was a very unique opportunity to kind of get this off my uh, chest and, and discuss the affliction with somebody wouldn't judge me or have me put away. And just a, a, a macabre serendipity, I guess you could say. Did you have an objective or, and if so, what was your objective in, in communicating with him? Friendship, really. It was, it was, a. I finally had someone to talk to. For, for me, I, I had no other uh, you know, ulterior motives or anything along those lines. It was really for me, it was just, it really was just a, a human connection, I suppose, that I, I was lacking. Uh, during that period, especially. I'm still lacking today, really, but uh, I'm dealing with it uh, in uh, much more uh, diplomatic, healthy ways. Do you think that your communications with Arthur Shawcross allowed you to kind of feel understood, or were you, is it kind of like you were comparing yourself to him, so you felt maybe less different? Yeah, um, yeah, I guess you could say that. I, was, I wasn't feeling as 
cut off from the world uh, or is alienated. It was just, uh, again, it was, it was an acceptance and uh, somebody I could, again, discuss my uh, uh, more demonic thoughts with uh, openly. And it was just therapeutic uh, writing. Just the writing itself was therapeutic. I had to get that out of my system, like I say, uh, purging my boogeyman, as it were. By, by writing to him? Yes. And then ultimately writing the book, of course. But, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, so in the book, you show a lot of Arthur Shawcross's letters to you, but you don't show the letters you wrote to him. So I guess my kind of twofold would be, what were you writing to him and, and how personal did you get with him? Yeah, it was just, uh, I, I mean, I got very personal. I, uh, at the very, yeah, I, I talk a little bit about that, or I, I don't know, I expound upon it in, in the book. Uh, you know, I don't, the letters of, of mine, I'm sure I don't, I don't have them, but basically the gist of it was uh, talking about a very uh, intense interest in uh, collecting mummified human heads, at least the replicas of them, uh, very realistic replicas, and uh, the, the shrunken heads, again, and, uh, you know, things like that I would discuss with him, and uh, we would, I don't know, we, we would get into some very dark uh, topics, like just, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, talk about Jeffrey Dahmer, of course, and cannibalism. Cannibalism uh, was sometimes central to our communication. So, I mean, things, things like that, just, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a give and take, just back and forth. It was, again, it was very cathartic for me to be able to discuss this type of thing with, with, with him. But, yeah, I mean, it got into some very dark uh, subjects, basically. His letters yeah. seem to, to kind of bounce around, and, like, there would be a paragraph about, oh, I don't know the weather and how much it's snowing there. And then the next yeah. paragraph would go into something, you know, something very dark as far as something he had done to a well, victim like, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, chopping their heads off or whatever, you know. Uh, yeah, it, absolutely. It, uh, it seemed almost a schizophrenic type of communication in a way. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so deep down the rabbit hole, it's not going to be logical to to a lot of people. But uh yeah, I mean we would have normal discussions in a sense, like you say, the weather or just uh, regular his daily uh, activities in, in prison, my own writing and whatnot. I was still I was always working always working on some writing project, you know. So so yeah, we 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 both bounce around like that. Were you afraid to get personal with him? No. No, I I was never I was never concerned about that. Developed a very comfortable rapport with the man so uh, it felt uh, like a family member, I suppose you could say, because I never felt uh, very close to any of my uh, bloodline, really. And anyone I did get close to in my bloodline uh, died. So I just, uh, yeah, he was basically all I had for a long, long time. And, of course, he died, too, uh, in the end. So that's, that's my life. Did he ever give you advice or suggestions or anything regarding kind of your affliction as far as how to cope with it or, or anything that he had done? Had, had you ever talked about that with him? Uh, I don't think he was overt in uh, encouraging me to do it, to do any of these deeds, like as far as uh, murder and cannibalism, shrinking people's heads. But, uh, you know, basically he would say, if you're going to do it, he'd always say, be good at it. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was like that. And so in a way, in a kind of a, uh, some subterfuge he was encouraging me. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting um, interpretation of, of coping with it. I guess I was kind of thinking on the other side rather than acting on it as a way of coping with it. 
you know, because he was in prison, he couldn't, you know, act on his affliction once he was in prison. So, you know, he yeah. had to control it on some level. So he never talked to you about how he was able to control it or anything like that? Uh, you know, I know towards the end of his life, he was start, starting to get into religion, and that, but we never talked about that aspect. As far as him controlling it in prison, I mean, he just, again, had no avenues to act on it. With myself, it's interesting, he sent me a, a photograph, or a couple of photographs one time, of uh, this woman he felt had uh, turned her back on him. And it was almost like he was hinting at uh, my going out to his to assassinate her, I suppose, which I would not do. But uh, again, he was obvious about that, but he did send me her photographs and uh, said some very nasty things about this person. It seemed so, like some things he was very overt about, but others he was quite subtle. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's, that's true. Um, but things like that, it was, uh, that was the dark, even the darker side of our uh, friendship, our relationship, uh, something like that. And I think actually... Uh, she was in Virginia, too. Yeah, I don't know if that expounds on anything. But in, in general, like kind of Arthur Shawcross's talk of, of murder and cannibalism, were those things that were, was it interesting to you just because most people don't talk about them? Or did you find it kind of off-putting? No, I mean, it was my life. It was more than interesting. It was a personal passion at the time, you know, and I wasn't sure which road I was going to take if I, if I, too, was going to act on these things. And that's the story, my life here, that I came out on the other side of that, more, more or less. Uh, I mean, it's not a complete 180 turn just yet, but, you know, I'm getting there. But, yeah, no, it was fascinating to me. I, I could identify with it because it was something I was going through as far as those types of uh, thoughts, those thought patterns, uh, which which come straight from hell, as they say. They're just It's not a human way to think, and I recognize that, especially now. It is, yeah, it's just something I had a very uh, a personal interest in and uh, at a very intimate level, I suppose you could say. Yeah, and you, at one point in the book, you described uh, Sharkross as pure breed evil. And I guess my question would be, do you separate his acts from your relationship with him, or do they kind of blend in together for you? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with what he did, um, especially some of his uh, earlier acts there. You know, it kind of blended into, you know, our relationship and communication. But, again, I don't want anyone to think that I necessarily agree with what he did. I was just trying to, part of it was trying to figure out who and what I was and am, you know. So, I was just trying to decipher my own psychology. And, you know, I had a very, again, unique opportunity to do this with, with Arthur Shawcross. You know, so uh, we weren't, like I say, exactly eye to eye. But, I mean, it was a, really the best I could do in it. It's, uh, you know, kind of a, a hellish blessing. You know, along with kind of your affliction, you talked about, you alluded to them already, but you have, you know, some pretty intriguing interests, I guess I would call them, such as cam- cannibalism or your the shrunken heads. What is it specifically about those things that so fascinate or interest you? Well, basically it's about uh, motivation for me would be to collect people and uh, preserve them. Basically, it'd be more about, uh, for me, companionship. Again, it's like a, a dumber of uh, mindset. Where, uh, you know, it's like you have a a safe friend, you know, somebody who can't uh, stab you in the back. And I've literally just about been stabbed in the back by a best friend of 20 years. So, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, basically for me, it is about the companionship and uh, preservation of, of human beauty. And as far as the cannibalism, 
it's a more of an assimilation or absorbing their spirit into your own kind of a, like I say, a quick and dirty way to upload their soul into your own soul and, uh, you know, modify oneself. So, but uh, yeah, again, that, that's all, all part of our collection. And, yeah, I've heard many serial killers kind of describe either the act of, of killing someone and, and also, I guess, the cannibalism as a the ultimate control over another individual. Do you see it that way for you, or is it more just kind of what you're describing before? Well, it's both. I mean, it's definitely an ultimate control over uh, another human, but it's not even uh, like I necessarily get off on that. I just, uh, I guess I have some uh, very, very serious separation anxiety now throughout my life. Uh, That's part of it. So again, it's just about uh, maintaining a very safe friendship with uh, someone you're uh, attached to, or even even an enemy, someone you perceive as your enemy, you uh, you know, collect them. That that is ultimate control right there, and uh, or eat part of them. In in reading the book, which was an excellent book, by the way, I I really oh, enjoyed you. it. Thank you. The the question that I had throughout this book, because this book to me is is more about you than it is about Arthur Shawcross, though it's certainly right. about Shawcross as well. Yeah. And, and the question that just kept going over in my head, and whether you have an answer to it or not, and that is, why didn't your kind of your deviant fantasies, I guess I'll describe them as, how come you never crossed the line into action? Yeah, that's a, that's a billion dollar question. Uh, I've come very close as I uh, read a little bit of that in uh, the book. But the thing is, I still have a, a sliver of empathy in me. All right. You know, and uh, aside from that, it's the prospect of spending a thousand years in, in prison. You know, that's the biggest uh, deterrent for me personally. But uh, you go beyond that to the spiritual, and then, uh, you know, karma catches up with you eventually. And But again, I, I do still have some empathy in me, or uh, I want to treat others as I, I want to treat it. And again, more so nowadays. I'm less sociopathic these days. But, uh, you know, again, I'm not 100%, uh, I guess, cured yet. What do you think yeah. it is that, that drives your darker feelings and thoughts? Probably... Uh, Feelings of uh, general betrayal by humanity and, uh, you know, it's just not being in control of really much in this world. It's almost uh, like a panic. You know, it's, it's really almost like a panic. Again, it's a whole uh, abandonment thing, you know, because, again, everyone close to me has uh, passed away. I have passed away and I keep losing people and friends and friends turn on you, so-called friends. And so it's really just, uh, it is, I think the major portion of it is a lack of uh, control over, uh, you know, humanity in general. Kind of starting further out and moving inward as far as kind of society in general. What is it that makes you think that, not that they haven't, but that society has kind of turned their back on you? What what is that? Is it just not that you you don't feel that you fit in or, or how, how do you, how does that manifest itself for you? Yeah, I'm not compatible with uh, people in general. I just, uh, uh, my, my, the way I think, especially, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm, out, I'm an outsider from the beginning. And so people uh, enjoy, seem to enjoy my writing and that type of thing. Uh, I'm just cut off. There's no uh, connection there. And there's almost a, a void within myself where I'm, I'm missing something where I just can't seem to connect. And like, I'm not, I'm not one of them. 
does it give you any kind of, I don't know, peace or happiness or calmness that you're able to connect to other people through your writing? Yes. Yes. Writing has always been a a wonderful therapy for me. And it's a, it's a legitimate therapy too, like art therapy. Uh, But yeah, that's definitely a uh, major uh, method of exercising again, the demon uh, to the best of my ability. But yeah, it does bring me peace. Do you feel that that you're just kind of not, not cut out to say succeed by a traditional definition within society, or do you think it's more connections with people or what is it that, that kind of drives your, your darker thoughts? Yeah, it's all the above. I mean, the structuring of the present day society, I don't fit into it. And I recognize a, to a great degree that it's a, a scam basically. And I see it as slavery and I could never have somebody who perceived himself or herself as my, quote unquote boss. I just can't abide that at all. I become very violent when somebody thinks uh so is delusional enough to think they're say above me or better than me. You know, so that, that drives me insane. I think on the societal level, I think a lot of people can could relate to what you're saying as far as not yeah. feeling like you fit in. Uh definitely yeah. a lot of issues with the you know the structure of a of an office environment. Why do you think that your kind of solution or your impact on that is that you would like to resort to violence. Yeah. Well, I guess part of it uh, would be uh, revenge, I suppose. Uh, On on certain people, certain classes of people, I I think a big part of that is a sense of wanting uh, some vengeance against them. Gritty and dark inside of me. But, uh, Again, gain some control and, uh, you know, put them in that place, I guess, certain people. Let me, let me ask you, as far as that goes, if you have ever, and it doesn't have to be anything violent or anything significant, but have ever uh, been able to kind of seek revenge or kind of even the field with, with someone, did that make you feel better after being able to do that? Uh, yes, yes. Thankfully, I've uh, never crossed that precipice into a uh, murder. But I've certainly come close with the, you know, uh, I guess a stabbing of uh, a best friend or alleged stabbing, and that case is cleared up anyhow. He stabbed me first, as I say, uh, a couple of years before that. But, you know, there's uh, like, I study jujitsu and chokes and strangulation, so I'm, I'm good at that. But, and uh, so it feels good to lock a choke onto somebody who's uh, acting like a bully, I suppose. And, uh, but again, it's never going into death, so that's a plus for all involved. As far as moving a little closer to home, as far as your childhood and your your upbringing, how much impact do you think that has on your darker thoughts and feelings? Well, my upbringing, it was a contentious upbringing. Uh, a lot of violence in my household, and a lot of bloodshed. And for instance, uh, getting beaten up over uh, some missing popsicles right, that my cousin and it, not, it wasn't me. I got a beating for that when I was uh, maybe eight or nine years old, and I slept in that same uh, blood-stained mattress for years from that beating. So that gives you kind of an idea of what that household was like. And it did affect me. Of course, it, it affects you. You can't help it. Not that I make excuses for anything I do, but you know, you can't help it. It just uh, it affects the wiring in the brain. And did you have uh, siblings that you lived with? Yes, I had uh, two sisters. I have two sisters, but. I took the brunt of the uh, brutality. 
And certainly that is not a traditional childhood as far as uh, most people have experienced. How much of kind of your inner demons or your inner darkness would you attribute to just you were born with it? Yeah, and, and that's another very good question. Yeah, I, I think uh, a big part of it is predisposition, definitely. Because uh, my uh, paternal grandmother used to refer to me as cool and loop when I was like three, three years old, even because of my, uh, I guess, lack of uh, many emotions. So I, I really think uh, I was born with it to a degree. And then, of course, your environment and other factors come into play. But, uh, yeah, predisposition is a very big part of it. Absolutely. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. So in the book, you mentioned a number of diagnosis, diagnoses that you've been given, uh, bipolar, antisocial, uh, suffering from PTSD, OCD, and then also that you've experienced periods of like kind of psychotic episodes. What do you, what do you think you suffer from? Uh, demonic possession. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's hard to pinpoint it. These, uh, I mean, doctors say bipolar and, you know, um, antisocial traits, uh, OCD, of course. I've had that since uh, as long as I can remember, six years old or so, but I, I didn't know what it was back then. Yeah, and there are uh, serious psychotic episodes, especially with, uh, you know, I have addiction problems too, you know, which I'm dealing with these days as far as that getting better from it uh, or of it. But, uh, yeah, alcohol brings out the worst in me too. That shuts things down where I have uh, legitimate blackouts and I don't remember some things I do until uh, the police are on my doorstep. And like I say, I don't make any excuses. It's just uh, scary. And I'm fortunate I've never killed anybody during uh, one of those blackouts. How much clarity do you have into your psychotic episodes? Well, I mean, logically, I understand them. But when you're in the midst of one of those episodes, like a detachment from uh, anything rational, and the irrational is perfectly like a like sane idea. It seems perfectly uh, normal to say, want to go and strangle someone, for instance, you know, under those conditions. And it's, it's very hard to get a handle on, you know, when, when you're in that position, especially you add alcohol into the mix, in my case, which is like liquid Satan for me personally. Have you ta- ever spoken to someone else who experiences psychotic episodes and kind of compared, or do you think you're similar or different in that regard? Uh, my psychotic episodes are extremely terrifying for all involved. Uh, I mean, I, I scare myself. I don't know of anyone personally who has had uh, the episodes at uh, the level I experienced them. So, I mean, I can't really relate to uh, anybody when it comes to those. It is like, it is like a possession, really, at least metaphorically speaking, it really is like a possession overshadowing. Yeah, it's probably a pretty good uh, description of it. I was going to say, in in the book, you mentioned your Uncle George, who he'd killed people during World War II. And I guess my question is, so do you think like a wartime scenario where you would have done what he did, would that have calmed your inner demons? I think it would have probably magnified them. It would have really magnified them um, and exacerbated everything a millionfold. Because uh, it's like once they get a taste of that blood, like any, any shocks, you know, you just keep going after it. And there is no ending to it until either you're locked up or killed. I was going to say, I think that kind of answers my question, but I was going to ask what you thought of someone like our Arthur Shawcross, if he was put into that kind of scenario where it was basically legal to kill, do you think that would have just 
encouraged him further? It would not have satiated his kind of desire? Well, he was in uh, the Vietnam War, and supposedly it killed some people over there, and so obviously it didn't help him. So, no, it would, it, it really does just uh, make it worse and worse and worse. So like, like any like any addiction, really. just gets uh, worse. What general. do you think about someone who doesn't have that kind of inner demon being put into those kinds of situations? Do you think they can bounce back from that? Uh, well, no, they come back home and commit suicide, God bless them. I mean, you have to be uh, a little, uh, a bit uh, detached from humanity, and I guess, uh, or sociopathic, in order to uh, maintain relative sanity. I, I think that's that's my opinion. Interesting comment to to say that uh, you need to be a little psychotic to be able to remain sane in that type of situation. Yeah, or at least, uh, like I say, sociopathic, so a detachment from uh, humanity. But uh, that's part of it to dehumanize. I mean, that, that's that's part of war anyway, and part of the training. So I guess my my second question, my my big question that I thought about throughout the book, which is very is similar to my other question, but that is uh, when you think about people who have these you know dark and murderous thoughts, what is it that keeps any of them from killing or killing more? In that you know an Arthur Shawcross or a BTK, um, you know, they killed a finite number of people, yet they're, yeah. w- they had years and years and years where they could have been killing more, and they didn't. Um, yeah. What is it that, that stops that? Uh, there's a lack of opportunity, too, a lot of times. And they're there with serial killers, especially. They're, they're, there can be prolonged uh, periods of cooling off, as they say. And, uh, but a lot of times, it's just lack of opportunity. That, that's what uh, Jeff Dahmer said as well. So just, uh, you know, you wait for the opportunities to present themselves. Uh, you know, you just fall into a normal routine in life. And so it, the, the, the affliction, it uh, reemerges, you know, it comes to the surface again for whatever reason, whatever sets somebody off, uh, you know, uh, somebody making you angry or whatever the case may be, or again, being un- under the influence of alcohol or drugs. There are a number of factors, really. But yeah, so opportunity. I, yeah, when I think about, but like I think about, say, Arthur Shawcross, and the idea that, that most people, if they had to be put in a room alone with him uh, when he was still physically in you know, a position, physically able that he could harm somebody, most people yeah. would be absolutely terrified to be in that situation. Yet right. he's been alone with many people and he's never harmed them. So what is kind of your, your, your take on, on a scenario like that? Like why are dangerous people able to not act on it at times? Well, I mean, just because somebody say, uh, multiple murder or whatever doesn't mean they're uh, completely out of control. They're able to control themselves to some degree. And again, there are other factors. I mean, there, is the person with, with him making him angry? Is he doing something to trigger him? I mean, if, you, if you're not triggering the person, then there shouldn't be a problem. It's not like a completely out of control uh, animal. See? So you know, we, we do all have the ability to control ourselves. Yeah, I, I, that's what I guess I'm kind of, I grapple with is trying to understand where that line is for control with many of the chronic, um, violent people. Yeah, again, it's just, uh, triggers and opportunities. Saying in the book, uh, and you'd allude to it earlier in the interview that the, the writing this book was a sort of literary exorcism. And I was just curious as to whether you felt that the, the writing this book did accomplish that. Yeah, again, that was, a- big part of it there is uh, to exercise the again the boogeyman and yeah it, it, it did to a, a tremendous degree do that it did just that my journey with these thoughts and 
Arthur is basically a voice in the background, so to speak, you know, throughout. And he actually helped me through it too. As I say, an unwitting uh, therapist in the darkest of senses, but I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, some positive that, that came out of uh, Arthur Shawcross. Exactly, exactly. Yes, for sure. You know, so, again, I, I never took uh, that path. I never went all the way with that, but I've certainly been very close and have firsthand understanding of what it's like to suffer uh, with these thoughts. I, I, I think Arthur was more evil and admittedly so that he was evil, but, uh, you know, like a Dahmer or, or myself, I do have a conscience and I, I'm not evil there's just you know like i say this very very severe separation anxiety and uh feeling of not being in control and so you know that's that's the only way a very primitive way for sure but to gain control over people just to maintain these friendships again but so i mean i'm a passionate person i have a soul but uh yeah shawcross was uh, again he was actually evil you know for sure well to Uh, wrap up i just want to ask you what are do you have any current writing projects or what are you planning on writing in the future there's a possibility I might do a follow-up with uh, Arthur's uh, daughter. So it's, it's uh, yeah, that, that's a possibility. I might be doing something along those lines. I, I have a couple of other books on the, on the back burner, too, that are like a horror satire, you know, a blend of horror, horror and satire about, you know, satirical it, horror. Would you consider it dark humor? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would imagine. Yes, yes. yes. The, your book, The Shawcross Letters, I read it in one day. I was absolutely, awesome. absolutely drawn in. And I couldn't put it down. I just, I, I, I mean, it was such a journey listening kind of to your, your life story, but just through the letters. And it, it was just a, a incredibly well-written and just a really engrossing book. Thank you so much. That, that means everything to me. I really appreciate that. Yeah, you really, I, I mean, as best you can and as much as you enjoy it, I would, I would definitely encourage you to keep writing because it is, it, you have a talent and it is um, very, very interesting and uh, I don't know if I'll say entertaining, but it certainly kept me captivated, uh, you know, reading what you wrote. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, John. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. John and I have become really good friends. And his show, Twisted Podcast, is amazing. You can follow John Taylor on Twitter. His handle is tiarta 24 which is the acronym for the inmates are running the asylum, followed by the number 24. All right, guys, so you just heard the Shawcross letters, and I wanted to bring in someone who is kind of a big deal. Her name is Allison Sweeney, and you might know her from Days of Our Lives, The Biggest Loser, and she has a new project, and I want to talk to her about it because she, too, is pretending to be someone else. So, <laughs> Allie, welcome to Pretend Radio. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah. So let's talk about the Shawcross letters. Yeah, that was really fascinating. That was creepier than an actual serial killer like piece. I, okay, so I had the exact same reaction because the anger, like the triggers he talked about and, yeah. and the rage yeah. and like, I just felt that it just seemed so real and and yet... I, I just felt like I don't know how you control that. And then some serial killers like Shawcross almost all, also seemed a little methodical. So like how does the yeah. rage mm-hmm. or the anger fit into that profile? Well, and you know, I'm not like a, a serial killer aficionado or, or anything like that, you know. Right. But I, no. I mean, I've read, you know, I, I've actually read um, Mindhunter, you know, that FBI book that was yes. later turned into yeah, like a course. Netflix series. And, you know, we're, and like right now there's that Ted Bundy thing on Netflix and we're all like so fascinated with the serial killers. And, and it's kind of cool that we get to hear Ted Bundy and all that. But like talking to this guy was like, yeah. it was like talking to like a, a serial killer, like in that time period, you know, like. Right. While it was all. Yeah. As they're thinking about it, not like after. And the mummies, like when he said he liked the control or the friend that never leaves you because you, <laughs> I, I just thought that was, um, it was really honest. I mean, it just was alarming, but honest. Part of it was kind of sad, wasn't it? Like the fact that um, he grew such a, like a tight friendship with this serial killer and like yeah. now he's gone. Right. And the, the, the whole letters thing too is fascinating. I, I do want to get this book because I thought, just the idea of that kind of old fashioned relationship, like a pen pal, you know, now today feels so um, distant somehow, but like to open up Mm. your heart and and then, or your mind or your emotions, I guess, to this stranger who just happens to have the same feelings you do. I I don't know. I I, I think it's fascinating. And then to have him reply. And like he said, I really want to read the um, letters because he was saying how It goes from one paragraph to the next, you know, in intensity to like, oh, the weather's nice this week. You know, I mean, I thought that was kind of a fascinating thing, too. Right. Like maybe he doesn't like dinner that night, you know, and you're going to hear that as well. And um, just that in some ways he's a human, too. Yeah. And and I think what's unsettling is how how human he is. Right. Yes. Like it seems like like he could be my neighbor or your neighbor. Right. Yeah. They are human. And that self-control, because I, I know this sounds like, I don't want to make light of it, that that desire for cannibalism. Right. Where does that come from? Because if you've never been a cannibal, 
what makes you crave that. Right. I I love Italian food. I like Mexican food, but that's because right. I had some really good Mexican food. You know what I mean? Right, right. Sometimes I want, it's like Thin Mint time and Girl Scout cookies. Right. And I'm like, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm like excited about it, right? Like, but you're right. It's But obviously it's not that, right? Like, It can't yeah. be that. It has to be part of that psychological thing he was talking about. Like and, a control, like it, yeah, like collecting shrunken heads, you know why? And and how does that manifest itself? Like how do you how do you then realize? I mean, at what point do you sort of have that real moment where you're like, oh, I know what I want to do? Yeah, you know, and and then you're realizing like that's not normal, you know. I mean, and this guy has lived with it and contained it, right? So he has had this awareness that I am not like everybody else, and nobody else sort of you know, has feelings like this or yearnings like this. And I better, and, he, and, and yet he's sort of sympathetic enough. He said kind of, yeah. but he's like, I haven't gone through with it. It felt like a, a thin shearing between doing it and not doing it. It did not feel like yeah. oh, there's this wall of things I won't do. Yeah. And to me, I mean, part of me is kind of glad that he's so open about it because in a way that's like his insurance policy. Right. With the world that he's mm -hmm. like, I have two choices. I could keep these demons in my head and you'll never know about it. And I could act on it or I or I don't. But that's up to me. But by telling the world, like it's almost like, hey, world, I have this sick desire. Now, you know about it. You know, what I mean, like you've right, been right. warned. Well, so yeah. But I do think that that is there is something to be said for that, and I wish, and maybe in the book he talks about more that what is the connection to his troubled childhood, and and perhaps there is real value to learning how he came to have the feelings he has, and maybe you know his willingness to talk about it probably helped him, right? Instead of keeping all those yeah. feelings bundled up inside. Maybe that was part of his process to, you know, deal with it was to be more upfront than we're comfortable with. But maybe it really does mm -hmm. serve a good of helping people maybe understand it better. I'm, and I'm interested in listening to the Twisted podcast because I think like that he was a really good interviewer. I really liked his style, too. All right, Allie. So thank you so much for coming on my show, by the way. But we have mutual like friends, right? This is tell people how we know about each other. Cause you know, like <laughs> how did this happen? Well, I feel like the fan here, like like just so you know, I have been listening to podcasts and getting into sort of this, I don't know, the podcast genre, I guess, for about two years. I can't even tell you the last time I listened to a song on my phone. Um <laughs> and I and so um a few of the podcasts that I listened to recommended your podcast. I had to check it out because uh, the women at Moms and Murder talk about you and Esther from Once Upon a Crime. Like you have lots of fans. You've got game. <laughs> oh, I didn't. I didn't realize I had game. Yeah. But yeah, Melissa and Mandy had you on their show, and you were so nice to like record a little message for my mom, who is like a huge fan of yours. And I grew up watching you, by the way. And Aww. we're like about, I think we're about the same age too. So it's like you and Alyssa Milano, you guys are like, you know, my, <laughs> yeah, my, <laughs> we grew up together. <laughs> we grew up together, right? <laughs> 
so it, it was so cool that, you know, like Melissa and Mandy had you on your show. And then, I, you know, we happened to to meet that way on Twitter. And, and I, one day I asked you, hey, we need to get you on the show somehow. Right. Yeah. And you said, yeah. Well, yeah. now's the moment. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. So let's talk about you and your new project, because you're kind of stepping into the podcast world in a way, right? Exactly. So yeah, it just all came from listening to so many great podcasts and realizing from a storyteller's point of view that this is a job, it's a role that would be a perfect opportunity to create a series around. And in fact, you know, I sort of look around like I'm shocked it hasn't happened yet. Um, I love working with Hallmark. So I Mm -hmm. pitched them the idea of a podcaster who is out there solving these cold cases. I have a thousand ideas in my head every day for a new episode of my mystery series. It's called The Chronicle Mysteries. My character is an independent podcaster, but she ends up getting kind of connected to a local newspaper. And so she's sort of supporting the paper with her podcast and she gets all the back issues and the files, um, you know, the backdated issues from the mm-hmm. newspaper. And there's a journalist. Of course, you know, we have a little bit of a love story there, you know, and some fun. You have to. Yeah, yeah. of course. You know, it, it was a great opportunity to bring in how, what a big difference these podcasts can make in someone's life. Like, you know, yeah. how, uh, and then how hard that is, right? How hard the hope is of like, oh, and I'm sure you must feel this, people turning to you, telling you their story, and then expect, you know, I'm sure they don't expect everything, but they're hoping it will make this big difference. It'll change something. Yeah. And, and that sits on your shoulders too. And so tell me how many, many series are there? So I made three movies last year, and each movie uh, has like a uh, ending, right? So each movie is close-ended for the case that we're working on. But the characters okay. continue and you'll get to see more of them developing, you know, their interpersonal relationships. Well, I want to thank you so much for like supporting the indie podcast scene, because, you know, a lot of people listen to This American Life, Serial, Criminal. I mean, we we get hooked by the big ones. Right. But you've I've, I've just noticed by your interactions on Twitter and stuff like that, you're really a big supporter of the indie scene. And that that's really awesome. You know, I love a good story. And I think what I love about what you're doing and what all the indie um, podcasts out there are doing is just bringing back this this storytelling that is really at the heart of like who we are as people. To hear more of my conversation with John Taylor and Allison Sweeney, go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. John Fay's book, The Shawcross Letters, is available through Amazon and wildbluepress.com. Again, thank you to John Taylor from The Twisted Podcast for sharing your episode. And thank you to Allison Sweeney for coming on the show and check out her new movie franchise on Hallmark called The Chronicle Mysteries. I'll talk to you guys real soon. Creative back.